Well, good morning, everyone. We doing okay? Uh, rumor has it these are new digs for you guys. Your second week in the middle school, and uh, having done mobile church for many years, this place is fantastic. Yeah, praise God. Um, well, it is a great honor to be here. Um, I'm going to tell you something that you guys already know, but you have struck the pastor jackpot. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I remember when Keith, you know, was started seeing Katie, and um, I, I, I'll never forget, it was probably 1997 in Merritt Island, Florida, and I remember we'd all be hanging out, and we're like, where's Keith? And Keith is off to the side studying the Bible, and I, like, he challenged me so much all the time, just his humility, his leadership, devoured the Word of God, and uh, I just... I was thinking this morning, Keith, um, I was got a little weepy during worship. You see, Lee, we come from a, a, a generation of pastors and great, great godly men, like our dad, Nick Welch. And I, I just got this picture of him in the cloud, just seeing this and just so happy and so proud. And so Generation Life Church is more than just a catchy name, like Keith is living it. And so... Uh, there was our, our, our faith patriarch, uh, you know, went to be with the Lord back in 2001, and it was difficult. It was very difficult. I'm going to be actually talking about difficulties this morning, but I just think, man, what a great, great, healthy body, and uh, I'm super excited. Can we give Keith just a great, I'm so glad you're here, Keith. So if you're taking notes, um, you want to jot, jot this down. Uh, the title of my message this morning is How to Have Confidence in the Difficult Day. How to Have Confidence in the Difficult Day. How many of you have ever experienced uh, difficulty in your life? Show of hands. It should be everybody. If your hand's not up, maybe you're an infant. I don't know. But, you know, the whole birth canal, that's tough too. So, um, yeah, we've all gone through difficulty. And, and as a matter of fact, when I look at the condition of our nation and I look at where things are headed. It doesn't seem like things are going to get much better. Uh, the days are growing darker, and uh, it shouldn't surprise us when you look at where America is, and when you read in the Bible about the condition of the world uh, when, when Jesus returns, it's starting to look more and more like that. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, pandemics, earthquakes, all that stuff. You, you're going to see an, in, an uptick in all of that as we approach the return of Jesus. And so if you're a guest here or maybe you're kind of new to the church scene, you need to know that the Bible is very clear. We're, we're waiting. We're kind of in the waiting season. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. Like he was here 2,000 years ago and he went to heaven to prepare a place for, for us, but we're awaiting a re, the return of our king. Amen. And in that delay, in the waiting, things are going to be tough. It's going to get hard. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 16, verse 33, these are the words of Jesus. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That almost sounds like a promise, right? Get ready. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, the problem is a lot of times we sign up for this following Jesus thing and we think that, um, you know, 
We think that Jesus is going to rescue us from all of our troubles. And once we get saved and once the Holy Spirit makes his home in us, everything is candy canes and, and ponytails, right? And everything's wonderful. But the, the truth is, God promises, Jesus himself promised us it's going to be difficult. And maybe you're here today and you have, like Katie even said during worship, maybe you're in the middle of difficulty or a season of hardship. And I, I will tell you, there's hope in all of it. And there's actually a way for us to have confidence in the middle of it. You know, in 2001, when our dad, Pastor Nick Welch, I mean, he was like my mentor, my best friend. I'll never forget him teaching me how to pray. And he came down with cancer. And we prayed. We did all night, like, prayer vigils. We, we thought for sure God was going to heal him, and then the church was going to explode, and everything was going to be awesome. It was going to be revival. And we prayed and prayed and prayed, and he died. It was terrible. It was a difficult day. And in that moment, I remember asking God, God, what are you doing? Like, I thought you were powerful. I read in, I read in the Bible that we're supposed to heal the sick, and we prayed, and he died. What? What's going on? And sometimes when we go through life, things don't work out the way we want. And we're looking for comfort, and God is wanting us to have confidence in the day of trouble. How does all that work? I've discovered over the last few decades of uh, walking with the Lord that difficulty is coming and it's increasing, but difficulty lies to us. When trouble comes, it lies to us about who we are and it lies to us about who God is. Some of you might have gone through seasons in life where you thought, man, God has forgotten me. Or maybe, maybe choices that you've made have created the difficulty you're in. Could it, be, it could be like bankruptcy or divorce or sickness or who knows. But when difficulty comes, a lot of times our adversary arrives on the scene of our life of the difficulty and tries to lie to us. I mean, if you read the life of Job, you'll read actually pretty much any of the stories in the Old or New Testament, and it's easy to believe the lie. God's forgotten you. He doesn't care about you. You're not that important. You deserve this. These are some of the lies that I've listened to, and maybe you have too, in the middle of a season of difficulty. And uh, our adversary doesn't play fair. And a lot of times if we aren't paying attention, if, if we don't know how to navigate a difficult season, it can sideline us. And I know many people who started out, you know, loving and even serving God and difficulty came and they ended up on the sideline because they believed the lie about who they were and they believed the lie about God. God, you're not powerful enough to get me out of this. You're not powerful enough to heal. You don't love me enough. I'm forgotten. I mean, the list of lies I could probably teach a whole course on the lies that we can believe in the middle of, a, of difficulty. So difficulty always tries to define us. I remember a few years ago, actually right before we moved to North Carolina, um, I went to the dermatologist because I had like this little spot on my cheek that was flaking and it was itchy. Went to the dermatologist and he said it was some form of skin cancer. So they had to do that fun surgery where like, take, they take the melon baller and kind of scoop out half your face. You know, it was delicious. And, uh, and you know, like big stitches and a scar, and it was just gross. And um, I remember I was talking to my friend. I was like, yeah, I guess I'm a cancer survivor. And they, they rebuked me like, no, don't, don't identify yourself as that. Like, don't let your trouble define you. 
And I'm glad they, they said that, or else I probably would have continued, you know, saying I'm a cancer survivor, and it probably would have been uh, insulting to those who really survived cancer. It was just a few abnormal cells on my face. But a lot of times, our difficulty tries to define us. And maybe you go around, and if you're introducing yourself to somebody else, yourself, you, you might say, oh, I'm divorced, or oh, I, I, I went through bankruptcy, or I'm a business owner, or... Um, you know, I, I've survived this, I've survived that, and we allow, we even welcome, because now I have something that defines me. Now I have an identity, but I, I would suggest that our identity needs to be attached to maybe something different than our trial. Maybe our identity needs to be attached to whose we are instead of what's happened to us. As a matter of fact, I think what's going on inside of us by the Holy Spirit should be way more important than, than what's happening to us. So, how do we believe the lies? Why does this happen? How do we become defined by our issue and our trouble? I'll tell you why, because I've done it a million times. Why does it happen? Because we stare at it. We stare at our trouble. You don't have the job you want, and you think about it all day long. You look at it. You stare at it. Maybe you're not feeling well, and you just think about how terrible you feel, or maybe you don't have enough resources, or you're, you're hoping for a raise, and you're just staring at the bank account and how little money is in there. And what happens is, is when we stare at our problem, it gets bigger. And I think maybe a sickness in the American church is that our problems are big, but our God's small. And I, when I read the Bible, the Bible talks about a big God that shrinks our problems, and maybe you're here today and the only thing you need to hear is that all you need to do is just shift your focus instead of focusing on how terrible your life is and how big your problems are. Maybe we could shift a little bit and start to look at the king of kings and start looking at the glory of God and how big our God is. It's amazing when you shift your focus how the things you're not looking at start shrinking. Amen? Amen. Difficulty steals our confidence. I remember when, when my father-in-law died, I had no confidence to pray anymore. I didn't want to pray for anyone who's sick. I thought, why would I serve a God who allowed my, my mentor to die? I mean, I was shaken. The whole family was shaken. And maybe you're here today and your faith has been shaken. And you know what? One thing I've discovered is that God loves to take our faith and test it to see if it's circumstantial or if it's like legit, if it's tried and tested and true. You see, the Bible talks about faith that goes beyond the happenings and goes beyond what's going on. And, and, and God wants to establish our faith on some things that are immovable. I've discovered that when we put our faith in the right place, it, it's not shaken. But the problem is we put our faith in an outcome. We put our faith in a circumstance. We put our faith in what we're hoping and wanting. And really there's only a few like validated spots for our faith. Like it's okay to have faith in who God is and what he's done. Like, Jesus is God. It's okay to put your faith in Christ, to trust that he has your best in mind, that he's able, he is powerful, to put your faith in his divinity, his power, his omniscience, all the good things about God. You can put your faith in that. You can put your faith in the promises of God. But I, I look, and in the Bible, there's a whole lot there that is not promised. God didn't promise that I'm going to get a promotion. He promised to provide all my needs. But sometimes maybe if we get the promotion, all that extra money will draw us away from God. I don't know. But I know that when 
he's the Lord of our lives and he directs our steps, that things tend to go better. I remember having this conversation with my youngest son who's watching from Boone, North Carolina at home. Uh, he, he said this just maybe a year or so ago. He goes, man, dad, everything just seems to work out for us, doesn't it? And I was like, well, yeah, things work out. But in the working out, you got to realize that people died in that. And we've gone through some hard days. We've gone through some trouble and some difficulty and some dark times. But we have a promise in the Bible that all things work together for good for us who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so, yeah, all things work out. But that doesn't mean we're not going to endure difficulty. Last week, I arrive um, early to work every morning, and uh, there's a warehouse, and I just do laps around the warehouse and pray. And the Lord whispered something to me, and it, and it was actually like the seed of, of this message. Uh, he said, James, you were made for difficulty. And I think he wasn't just talking to me, but I think it's all of us. And, and I'm here to tell you, you're made for this. You weren't made for, for comfort. You weren't made for a cush life and, you know, to just ease through life with no problems. No, no, no. You were made for difficulty. God put his Holy Spirit on the inside of you, the power of a billion sons living inside of you, not so you could just kick back and enjoy life on your boat all day. No, because there are people out there who don't know God and their difficulty is swallowing them up. And they need to see an example of what joy in a storm looks like. They need to see what, what true joy looks like when we encounter difficulty and it doesn't shake us. And we'll be a testimony to the rest of the world because they don't have what we have. They don't have the, the, the God, uh, the, the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They're, they're tossed about all the time by difficulty. They're one trial away from calling it quits. But God made his home in us so that we could be an example to the world. So we're going to look at a parable found in Matthew chapter 25. And, um, and I think there's something in there for us. And at the very end, we're going to get, look at three, three ways or three keys to have confidence in the difficult day. But if you want to open your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> this is a fairly well-known parable. It's the parable of the, the ten virgins. So I'm going to read it. It's a little lengthy, about 13 verses, but y'all hang in there with me. The verses will be up on the screen. I'm reading from the New King James, and I think that's the NIV on there. So if you see a few words different, don't freak out. Okay. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, we talked about that, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So I want to give you a little cultural context to this parable, so maybe it'll help, you, help us understand. In Jesus' day in Jewish culture... <clears throat> 
When a man wanted to marry a woman, he would propose and there would be this betrothal. It's like an engagement. And she would accept and everyone would know, okay, there's a wedding coming. But then the groom would leave. He would leave and he would go and construct a home for them to live in. And she, the bride, would wait for his return uh, so that they could go and live in his house together. And it's very similar to where we are right now, right? Jesus came. He betrothed us. We're, he proposed with his own blood on the cross. We said yes to him. And he has gone to prepare a place for us. And then one day he will return with a trumpet and we will go to be with him. That's the Bible, okay? If you didn't know, now you know. Um, and I wonder, you know, the delay meant that the place he was preparing was pretty amazing. Like if the groom took a long time, it meant the place he was preparing was fantastic. And so the longer the wait was, the, the bride would grow in her anticipation thinking, oh my goodness, the place my beloved is preparing must be amazing because he's been gone a long time. And in the same way, if you read, you know, Jesus created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he's been gone 2,000 years. Do the math. I think the place he's preparing is fantastic. So when Jesus left, he left the Holy Spirit. If you read in Acts chapter 2, it was the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And in, in the Bible, it talks about the Holy Spirit being a down payment. It's almost like when you put a coat on layaway. Do they still do that? I remember... When I was a teenager, my parents couldn't afford to pay for the coat right out. I was in upstate New York, and so my mom would go put 20 bucks down, put it on layaway, and then she would come every week, and she'd put another 20 bucks down as funds came available. For those of you kids, those were good days. But eventually, she would come back, and she'd pay the last 20 bucks, and we would take that coat away, and I would be styling with a great leather coat in school. It was fantastic. Well, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, saying, the Holy Spirit's going to be here while I go and prepare a place. And this is the guarantee. The, the person of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of my return. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit's job is to prepare us for the return of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is a gardener. Right now, he is cultivating his fruit on the inside of his people. He's cultivating love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is what comes out of you when you cooperate with the person of the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? You go through your day and you get a little nudge from the Holy Spirit saying, close your mouth, self-control, right? Or love. You know, I think a lot of times we think that loving God happens here on Sunday morning. I believe that this should be just the celebration of our loving God Monday through Saturday. Does that make sense? Like, it's, it's great when the music is great and Katie's singing and, and the, the drums are going and you're, they're singing your favorite song. That's wonderful. But I think the real test of loving God is when somebody cuts you off in traffic or when that person that annoys you won't leave you alone at work or, you know, how we interact with people, that is loving God. We love God by how we treat each other. And then we arrive on Sunday and we celebrate the sacrifice of loving God all week long. And we get here on Sunday and we say, oh Lord, all that was for you. I did all that because you are so good. And I think that might, you know, add a new dynamic to our worship if we live that way. So 
we have this parable, 10 virgins, five were wise, five were foolish. The wise ones, this is what they did. This is the only thing that made them wise is they took intentional effort to make sure they had extra oil in their lamps. Now, I believe that this parable is speaking to us because it's clearly about the return of Jesus. It's clearly about the return of our bridegroom who's coming for us, the bride, his church. And so there's, there's a message here for us that I think is vitally important, and I want us to catch it. So in the delay, all of a sudden, the, the announcement was made. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. So the wise and the foolish, they trimmed their lamps, they got ready, and the foolish ones realized that they didn't have enough oil. In other words, when the groom came, they didn't have sufficient material that would illuminate the face of their beloved. So he came in the middle of the night. He came in darkness, in delay. You could say he came in a time of difficulty. And sometimes we allow the difficulty to define us instead of allowing something on the inside of us that will illuminate the face of Jesus in the middle of our trial, in the middle of the delay. And so what is that? To put it plainly, intimacy with Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say intimacy. If, if you're wondering what the word intimacy means, you might have heard this before. Keith is a great preacher. He's probably shared this before. But a great, great way to remember it is into me he sees. Right? It is this abandoned heart open to the Lord. That's what intimacy is. That's what, you know, when you're intimate with your spouse, they know everything about you. You don't hold anything back. It's all full disclosure. And that's what God is calling us to have with Jesus. Full disclosure, holding nothing back, intimacy. And what happens is when you cultivate the oil of intimacy, you will see clearer the face of Jesus. And what does that look like? By yourself, like my intimacy with my wife, like on Fridays, I don't schedule anything on Fridays. That's our stay home date day. She'll get uh, a pizza dough from Publix and we'll sit down and we'll have pizza and we'll discuss and we'll chat and it is just fantastic. And it's one of my favorite things and it's part of the fuel of our marriage. I remember for one of our anniversaries, uh, we went to, I forget, some coast in Florida. I rented a little place on the beach and it was wonderful, like three days on the beach. And I remember for like six months afterwards, we kept talking about and thinking about that anniversary vacation that we had. We drew from the oil of intimacy that we experienced days before. Why do I say that? Because I think it's common, unfortunately, that the majority of our relationship with God might happen here on Sunday morning or in a group setting. And if, you're, if the majority of your interaction with, with the Lord is around other people, I would, I would suggest you employ the iceberg principle, which is like only 10% of your relationship with the Lord should be in public. 90% of it should be behind closed doors when nobody's looking. And so what that means is maybe you wake up a little earlier. Maybe you, uh, you know, sit in your car before you head into the office. But you cultivate vulnerability and intimacy with Jesus. So, and what will happen is you will start to see his face. And then this is what happens. When the difficult day comes, 
You have developed a big God in your heart, and your problem doesn't match your God. The issue, that the, the difficulty of the day can't hold a stick because you've spent time cultivating intimacy with Jesus in the secret place when nobody's looking. John chapter 5, verse 39. I'll read it. He says, this is the words of Jesus. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees. They were professional Christians. Well, they weren't Christians back then, but they were professional religious people. They studied the scriptures. They had literally memorized like the first four books of the Old Testament. The, you know, they, they, were, they were Pharisees because they had proven themselves to know the scripture. And so they walked around very prideful, very haughty because of their Bible study. And if anyone was considered religious, it was them. And Jesus here rebukes them. And he's saying, you know the scriptures, but you don't know me. I am the word. You know the Bible, but you, don't, you, you have yet to have intimacy with the Father. <clears throat> to make it through the difficult day, we cultivate intimacy in our heart with the Lord. And that looks like reading the Bible. That looks like praying. But I've found in my own life that Bible reading can turn into a doing for God instead of being with God. Have anybody experienced that before? Or, you know, you have a good time of prayer and the next conversation you have with somebody else, you're like, oh man, I was in prayer today. And all of a sudden you start bragging about your intimate prayer life with Jesus that was meant to stay behind closed doors and you lose the reward because you're bragging about it. I'd see it in my own life. Maybe, maybe it never happens to you. But I just know that, that, that what happens in this secret, intimate place needs to stay between you and the Lord, unless he gives you a word for someone else, which is probably going to happen, which is what happened to me. I just started spending time with Jesus, and I believe he gave me a word for you, how to be confident in the day of difficulty. And uh, <clears throat> I've seen in my own life, and I've seen in the church, a wrestling match between the doing for versus the being with. And our flesh, our mind, we love the doing for God. I mean, I work for Samaritan's Purse, right? We do so much for God. Like we, we, we're ch literally changing the world in the name of Jesus. We've sent, I don't know how many metric tons of food, food to the Ukraine. We're doing children's heart surgeries. I work for Operation Christmas Child, you know, with the shoe boxes. We've, we, we're getting ready to celebrate 200 million shoe boxes. That means we've preached the gospel to 200 million children all over the world. That's crazy. It's crazy. So we're doing for God. And the temptation is, in the, in the place of prayer, to come before the Lord and say, look what I've done for you. Why do we do that? Because we're ingrained in, in our lives with a performance-based love. We're, we're ingrained to try to please God and get on the treadmill of good works, hoping that he likes us more if we do good things. And I'm hoping to maybe unhitch that trailer from the, the car of performance and hitch it instead to the God of grace who loves you when you don't pray, who loves you when you haven't read your Bible for a month, 
the God who loves you in the middle of your sin. He loves you. Do you understand that? Maybe you're here today and you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet. And I'm telling you, the God of the Bible loves you no matter what. Like he, he proved his love on the cross. And, and he sees the beginning from the end. <clears throat> like when the day you were born, God was there. He saw the whole thing. He knows the day you're going to die. He sees the entire thing, almost like a comic strip. He sees, ah, they were born here. Here's where they are today. Here's the day either I return or that they go home to be with me. He sees the whole thing and he says, I love all of you. Now, what happens is we, we're performance-based in our job and sometimes even in our parenting, Right? Like if my kids do good, I reward them. If they do bad, I spank their, their hide, right? Are we allowed to say that in church anymore? I don't know, right? It's performance-based. I, I remember a few times where my kids had done wrong and they deserved to be punished. But in, in, in the moment, like the Holy Spirit said, you need to show grace. And so it was like this nudge. And I just said, I'm not gonna punish you. You just need to know that I love you. And that love was like it broke that rebellion or whatever. And I was able to demonstrate God's love to my kids. And I think it stayed with them. I mean, they love the Lord now. But I, I want us to get off the treadmill of trying to earn and achieve and attain God's love because we can't. We, he, we're, he's already crazy about us. He's your papa. He loves you. Um. A few years ago, maybe 2015-ish, uh, I, I got into a sport called paramotoring. Does anybody know what paramotoring is? Just, all right, one guy over here, awesome. So paramotoring, maybe you've seen them flying over your house. It's basically a backpack with a propeller on it and a wing kind of over your head. Looks like a, a banana peel parachute kind of thing. And you run and, you, and it's just a little two-stroke uh, uh, motor on your back and you fly around. And it's fantastic. But it's a two-cycle engine and so you don't just use pump gas like you got to mix the fuel with the oil and you got to mix it just right because if you don't your your engine is going to sputter and cough and smoke and it's not going to run right and uh, the last thing you want is while you're flying for your motor to not run right then you in trouble right uh and so I, I, why do I say that? Because yes, we are supposed to do good works. Yes, we're supposed to read our Bible. We're supposed to do all these things. But primarily, our, like, we don't need to do it in order to earn God's love. Like We have to accept his love as a free gift. Like Thank you, God, that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. And so because you purchased my life, the whole thing is yours. And so we get to be with God. That's like the oil. And, and then we get to do for God. And that's like the fuel. And the mixture together is supernatural. And it causes incredible combustion and power resulting in your life. That's what I think James says. It. Faith without works is dead. Like if you just say you love God, well, that's great. But if there's no proof, then your faith is worthless. But if there's this beautiful mixture where first you receive the love of God, you have faith in God, and you receive his love as a free gift. And because you receive it, it propels into good works. It's a beautiful mixture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus said, many, many, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name did we not, and, and drive out many demons in your name and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, that's a pretty tough statement. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and disciples, and he's saying a lot of people are going to come on that day, and they're going to say, Lord, look at all the things that we did. And he's going to say, you never cultivated oil of intimacy. I don't know you. Yeah, you did all these things and you put my name on it. I just wanted to be yours. I just wanted to be with you. And I'm, I'm calling, I've, I believe the Lord has called me here to call us to a mature love of God. One that will stand and be confident in the difficult day. That when difficulty comes, you don't stare at it so much that you forget who your God is. And you don't stare at it so much that you forget who you are. But you know whose you are. You belong to the king. He's your papa, and he takes care of you. He takes care of us, and he's good. Probably one of the most difficult days of my life. I was pastoring. It was early on. It was probably 2011, 2012, and uh, we had this great leadership team in church, and there's this one couple, the, the wife, she was handling um, a lot of our admin and, and, you know, books and stuff. And then the husband was heading up our small groups. And uh, they were a great, great team. And out of nowhere, he gets cancer. And so our whole church surrounded them and rallied around them. Um, we served them like we, he never went to one doctor's appointment alone. Like our church was there. We got them gift cards. We had du dudes from our church went out and built a ramp onto their home for his wheelchair. I mean, I mean, for like an entire year, we, I was so proud of our church. I mean, we served them, loved them. It was, it was fantastic. And then one Sunday morning, I'll never forget this Sunday morning. I was sitting on my couch, and I'm studying, getting ready to, to preach, and uh, the wife sends me an email. And in the email, it says, Pastor James, you're a good preacher, but you're not a good pastor. Uh, we're, we're not attending your church anymore. We're out, in a matter of speaking. And I was devastated. And I, I wept and I just felt like so betrayed, like we had done so much to show love, unconditional love to this family, and they basically just stomped on it. And I, all I, I called my dad, I, I just didn't know what to do, I called my dad and he prayed with me, he pray, I remember him praying the shield of faith over me and I had to go preach and somehow I put a few words together, I don't remember what I said. Um, but I remember as I was driving to church, I said, Lord, what in the world? I mean, we've, we've done our best to show your love to this family, and they stabbed me in the back. And the Lord, clear as day, spoke to me. And he said, um, he said, James, now you get to love them the way I love you. She has actually given you a great gift. And I said, oh, man. And so we continued to love them and continued and reached out in Olive Branch. And it became clear that hurting people hurt people. And she was, in, in the face of losing her husband to cancer, 
She just, you know, didn't know how to navigate it. Well, about eight months later, after monthly reaching out, reaching out, eight months later, we sat down, had coffee, cried together, reconciled, and it was fantastic. And I'm so thankful for that day of difficulty. Why does God bring us through difficulty? Because it shows us how to love. It shows us how to love people who don't like us. And this world needs Generation Life Church to love that way. So if you find yourself in a difficult day today, realize that everything is father-filtered. Like God wants to use your difficulty to stretch your capacity to love so that your idea of who God is gets big in your heart and the problem gets small because the world needs to see that. So we need to position our hearts for intimacy because it was my intimacy with the Lord that allowed me to hear his voice and navigate that difficult day. So I want to give you just three simple steps, three ingredients that will position our hearts for intimacy. This is what it looks like. Super intense application. Very, very applicable. Number one is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So get into your room, close the door, go to your prayer closet, get in your car, get alone, and start here. The Bible says we come into his gates with thanksgiving. We have enough to be thankful for to spend about a billion and a half years thanking God. Start by thanking God for your life, your body, your family, what you do have. Don't focus on what you don't have. Thank him for what you do have. So I thank, when I start in the morning and cultivate the oil of intimacy with Jesus, I thank God for what he's done. What has he done in your life? If you know him, he's saved you. He's provided for you. Most of you came today in a vehicle. Thank God for the vehicle. Most of you had breakfast this morning. I work in Africa where a lot of people don't have breakfast. Thank God for your breakfast. I mean, you could get in as detailed as you want. You ever thank God for your fingernails? I thank God for these things. They've saved my, you know, from stubbing my hand. You know, when I was younger, they fed me. No, just kidding. They didn't, right? Thank God. You, there's a million, and, and, and uh, invite the Holy Spirit to help you thank God. Ask him. Say, Holy Spirit. What can I thank God for today? And the Holy Spirit will help you. He's, your, he's like your maitre d'. He's your guide. He's going to help you thank God for things in your life. So you thank God for what he's done. And number two, you praise God for who he is. Thank him for what he's done. Praise him for who he is. So after you spend maybe 15, 20, you could probably spend an hour or two in just Thanksgiving. And I think many times my heart just naturally shifts gears into praise. I think some of us may not praise the Lord because we've stopped growing in the knowledge of God, right? Like we know who God is, based, you know, broad strokes in the Bible. But like, you ever think about studying the meekness of Jesus? Like Jesus, he is all powerful, yet he humbled himself. Like that topic alone will, will take about a million years to unpack. The knowledge of God is like a kaleidoscope. Like you look at it and you see something different all the time and the Holy Spirit will help us to know God and everything about God is praiseworthy, everything. To know God is to love God and to praise him. So like, whoa, God, you're so big. I was praying one time in the morning in the warehouse and the Lord said this to me, it's so crazy. He said, James, you have never known a day of your life where you didn't have food because you, 
you, you weren't able to purchase it. Like I've gone without food before, but never because I, I couldn't afford it. And I work in Africa where that's a reality for a lot of people. And it just struck me. And I was so, I poured out gratitude on the Lord because of what he's done. And I praised him because it's who he is. He's a provider. I and mean, we could spend hours praising him for who he is. He's just, he's long-suffering, he's merciful, he's kind, he's a redeemer. He can take our difficult day and turn it into something beautiful. He can take your trial and turn it into a testimony. He, can, he, he does these things, and that's praiseworthy. You praise him, you just say, God, you are worthy. And it's wonderful to say back to God who he is. Lord, you are merciful. You're long-suffering. You're so patient with me. You're so kind. Oh, God, there is none like you. You are matchless. You are worthy. That's what praise looks like. And then the last one, surrender. Those three ingredients are beautiful. Thanks, praise, surrender. It's easy to surrender after you praise. In light of how big God is, I offer my life. I surrender my sin. I surrender my finances. I surrender my life. I surrender, surrender. Surrender isn't a one-time decision. Sometimes it's a minute-by-minute thing. Amen? All right. I'm done, but I want to give just an invitation. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads for a second? Will you take 20 seconds and just thank God? Just thank him. Allow the Holy Spirit to direct what that looks like. Take the next 20 seconds and praise Him. Thank Him for what He's done. Praise Him for who He is. This is what cultivating intimacy so we can see His face in the delay. And now take the next 20 seconds and surrender. Maybe there's something in area of your life that the Lord has been knocking. He's been asking for a relationship, a, a time of day, a possession, an idol. Surrender to him. Maybe there's uh, unforgiveness that you've been holding on to. You just you refuse to let someone loose in your heart. Forgive. Surrender. And if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I can tell you it'll be the best decision you've ever made. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this earth and he's, he was God. And as God, he lived a sinless life and paid the penalty for your sin and for mine. The thing that separated us from God, Jesus took care of all of it. And in order for us to have access to be in the family of God, we simply receive the gift of salvation. We receive what Jesus did, the payment for our sin by faith. You don't have to do anything. You just have to receive it. So if you're here today and you want to say yes to Jesus and surrender your life, just pray this simple prayer. Say, dear Jesus, I surrender my life to you today. I don't belong to me anymore. You purchased my life with your blood. And I say yes to your sacrifice. Come and make your home in me. The rest of my life is yours. Thank you for loving me perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen.